For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, learn about Rancho Feliz, a volunteer-powered effort to break the cycle of poverty in Agua Prieta, Mexico. A conversation with author Marquez Price about his debut collection called My Train is on Schedule. Meet Michael McDonald, who's just become the new executive director of the Tucson Audubon Society. And Stories That Soar presents a play written by a fifth grader named Sanjita. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. At the end of last year, Scottsdale-based philanthropist Gil Gillenwater was recognized for his decades of work in raising the quality of life in Agua Prieta, Mexico, through a project called Rancho Feliz that he founded in 1987. It's a multifaceted effort to marshal volunteer power from both sides of the border to break the cycle of Mexico's material poverty and what Gillenwater calls Arizona's poverty of purpose. Next, joining Gillenwater to tell us more is Reyes Sagaste, whose family contributes to and has benefited from Rancho Feliz, and Veronica Estrada, who's been working with the Rancho Feliz Charitable Foundation for 11 years. The primary pillar is that the day I realized there were two types of poverty and both of them were absolutely degrading and humiliating. One is the poverty of material items, no roof overhead, not enough food, no education for your kids. But the other poverty that I found is a poverty that I live in in Scottsdale, Arizona. And as bizarre as this may sound, there is a poverty of abundance where you have too much. You can't make a decision which one. You're dissatisfied. You always are chasing a newer boat, another girlfriend, a bigger house. You are in what we call a cycle of suffering. And we see it with our young people today. Drug uses, opioids are off the charts. Teenage suicide's crazy. So what I discovered was I could create one situation, a service situation, where, and I like to say, we feed their souls. They feed our spirit. They give us purpose. So this single transaction, and Mark, get this, we've had over 25,000 volunteers come across the border, stay in our dormitory in Rancho Police, and feed their souls and give purpose to their lives. That was what made our program sing. And the other thing is, we're all volunteers. I think it's a, a conflict of interest when I raise money for a charity that funds my lifestyle. This has all been volunteer work, and it works. Okay, well, Reyes, definitely I'd like to know your first impressions uh, when you first made contact uh, with Gil himself, let's say. Let's start the story there. Pues, uh, imagínate para, para las necesidades de mi familia y, y conocer eh, pues, un personaje de este tamaño fue algo impresionante para nosotros. And his first impression was, you know, he was lucky to have to meet him. And he's a very humble person, and everything he does and has done for the people in Agua Prieta has changed in his life and his family's life. I understand that education for your children was a key component of this, Reyes. And so I'd like to know what kind of results you saw. Uh, how, did, how did that become a reality for your family? Obviamente, eh, el sueño de todo padre es 
his uh, the influence Rancho Feliz influence has been very impactful in their lives and he just said as any parent you know your dream is always to provide a good education for your kids um, not even in a million years did he imagine um, he'll be able to do so he has um, his oldest son graduated from a global economic management in Germany um, his daughter is an attorney. She graduated from private school in Monterey, and the youngest is a doctor. Congratulations on your family, Reyes. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Gil, we'd like you, of course, to center up just a little bit and pitch in with that response to that. I don't know how to respond to that. I mean, that makes my life worth living. That story alone makes my life worth living. And it's so achievable. It's so close to home. How fortunate are we to find the kind of need and poverty that, that I see on the outskirts of Agua Prieta? You'd have to travel to India. And I can take these students from Sedona, Paradise Valley, put them on a bus, get them down here in four hours and let them see how fortunate they are and what a difference they can make on the planet themselves. They don't, it's, it's, it's no video game. This is life. And I'll tell you what, three days of being uh, immersed in, in the challenges these people face down here, they will never say, why don't those darn Mexicans stay in their own country? Now they understand the challenges and they can help create a solution that has a little more sense than a, a wall. Veronica, as a volunteer with the Rancho Feliz a Charitable Foundation, uh, what kind of transformations do you see? Yeah, I can speak from both ends. Um, you know, as a Mexican who leaves the country, I was born in the United States, but I grew up in Mexico and it's always in my heart, the uh, desire to go back to Mexico. This has been an amazing opportunity for me to give back, give back to my people. You know, every trip I, I make, I see the need and in helping with education you know the programs for education is just a little bit that i can get back give back to my people and where i see the transformation is in the community in the mexican community there is a lot of um gratefulness you know people see it, it it's not a give out you know you have to provoke to perform, like the educational programs. It's not, Rancho Feliz is not giving out anything. Is you need to perform by attending school, by having good grades and by bettering yourself. And, you know, some of the students that don't speak a word of English, now you go a year later and now you can have conversations with them. So by seeing firsthand how much benefit is creating to the community, by a sibling doing this and the next generation is trying harder and harder. So it's like Gil said, it's a win-win situation for everyone. You know, the people who are receiving the help, they're, they're really taking great advantage of it and they understand but that by performing is the best way of being grateful and thanking the uh, group. So we've heard Gil Gillenwater speak to the transformation he's seen in the American Volunteers who participate in this program. I'd like to know from Reyes if this changed his perception of Americans. Mi percepción obviamente es una yo yo veo mucha gente buena. 
He says that his perception is a little bit influenced by his experience, and therefore he's been surrounded by great people, and his way of giving back or paying back a little bit is his time. He tries to be involved as much as he can, and he said, in general, for me, my perception is nothing but great people. You know the words opportunity and freedom? You know, they're almost synonymous. Without opportunity, you don't have any freedom. And so what we do, we provide education. We provide people ways to live with dignity in their own country so that they don't want to have to migrate illegally into the United States. We provide uh, the democratic redistribution of opportunity, not welfare. Rancho Police is not welfare. Nothing is free in this world. And I don't care if it's you're getting a food bag, you got to work for it. If you're a student, you got to volunteer on the weekends. If you're a parent, every single parent's child has one of our scholarships. They make monthly payments toward that scholarship. They might not be much in your eyes or my eyes, but it's an investment by them in their children's future. And you know, the most important part of it, they retain their dignity. Gil, I'd like to know about this book that you have put together. It's, it's more than just a a manifesto or a treatise. It's it's a cultural gift and it explores a lot of angles of your learning and your growth in this situation as you have received this information and wisdom from the people you've been working with. I've traveled all over the world. I've spent a lot of time in Tibet, in Bhutan, in different countries. So I, I've had access to different ways of viewing uh, the, uh, the situation, our shared humanity so to speak. And what I, the conclusion I have come to is that we have to remove those things that separate us because once you draw a line in the sand, you create conflict. It happens every time. We have to embrace the communal ego. We have to exchange the individual ego for the communal ego. And that way we can all have a decent life, decent access to a, de a decent life. The book talks about the fact that the border, this 2,000 mile swath of land is neither Mexico nor American. It's its own third nation. It really is, we speak Spanglish down here. What we have created is this icon who represents this third nation and the book talks about her symbolism and it really goes into great detail um, not just in eastern thought but also uh, the aztec and the mayan and everything that goes into making this border the bizarre byzantine place that it is in english the book is titled the border virgin queen of the third nation published by the rancho feliz press a collaboration between scottsdale and agua prieta thanks to my guests rancho feliz founder gil gillenwater reyes sagaste and veronica estrada more information about their mission is available at ranchofeliz.com author essayist and poet marquez price writes about his life in an order that is chaotic moving through time and emotional depth like a deep-sea diver, finding treasures that share secret destinies everywhere he goes. I asked Marquez Price to tell us about his book. My train is on schedule. is It's like a play on the words of, you know, a train ride, basically a train ride throughout some of the, you know, the travels and, and stops and continuations of my life from a, a romantic standpoint, a familial standpoint, firsthand vicarious experiences, pitfalls and, and heartbreak and triumph kind of all rolled into one. 
Can you share with us an example from the book of a passage that helped revive a memory for you, that maybe put something back into focus in an unexpected way? Um, a, a brief one uh, that really brought back uh, a memory, a piece entitled Perspective. And um, it reads straightforward, being a pallbearer in the morning and the best man later that night was my lesson of living in the present. And that directly came from uh, a day a few years ago um, where I attended a funeral of a very close friend of mine. And um, that evening, I was a best man in a wedding of another close friend. It just gave me, you know, that perspective of, wow, like, you know, live in the moment, you know, as cliche as that sounds. There's one that will really stick with me, and it's, again, a, a brief window, a brief memory, perhaps, of you in the bathroom with your sister, and you say something unkind. Could you read that? Yes, it says, um, my piece was entitled Moon, and it goes, my sister burned my neck with a curling iron. As I teased her about her weight in the bathroom when we were kids, I was insensitive to how the girlfriends I had had mood swings, and I had to accept it every month for an unpredicted number of days. The helplessness I felt the first time my niece experienced her menstrual cycle was ineffable. It rearranged my empathy. I like rearrange my empathy. That, that's a great concept. And it also applies a little bit to the reaction I had as a listener to your audiobook in the mm -hmm. sense that I felt like some of these were puzzle pieces that yes. were there ready to be put together by the author or by the listener but we wouldn't necessarily end up with the same picture. Yes, yes. You know, like I said, that one, it was a direct experience. I was just piecing it from different points of my life, you know, from childhood to, you know, teenage, young adult years to, you know, the vantage point of, of seeing a younger female, my niece, having, you know, a newfound empathy. Whereas before, as a kid, I'm looking up at my sister and, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I don't have any concept of what's going on and, and she's in pain, you know, and then I have later, later on, I have girlfriends who are, they might have a gamut of emotion they're feeling and I don't understand it. And I feel victimized because I have to endure it. And it finally comes full circle when I'm looking at my niece and I'm saying, wow, you know, and then I feel that helplessness. And then on the horizon, I see that, that empathy rise and then it kind of ties everything together with everybody that I experience. The feeling that we're being victimized by another person's behavior, that's, that's a really um, personal thing to open up about. And I, I wonder if you considered while you were writing the book about how masculinity as an identity mm -hmm. can be something mm -hmm. that others may be victimized by. Masculinity and its effect on others is something that uh, is having more light shed on now. Um, whereas from a scope of patriarchy. You know, it was always seen as one way. Um, but now with more of a, a voice that women have, and it's, it's, it's held in a different way to where, you know, the empathy goes on both sides, and it's understood more, whereas beforehand, I feel like, you know, it was shunned. And at the same time, as a man, you know, I want to embrace my masculinity and protect it as a man. I'm still that but at the same time, to not be so blinded to where everything else is just, you know, non-existent. And that piece was, uh, as you stated, a puzzle, you know, I was just putting together where I was able to have epiphany at the end point, you know, beyond gender or sex is that 
you can look beyond yourself. You know, you're not always the victim or you're not always the person in position of power. Everything can be examined both sides of the spectrum when you apply an immense clarity to it. When you said at the end point, you know, that you began to have an epiphany, and I wonder how an end point and a project like My Train is on Schedule, how that end point is defined. Because you could have continued to add loose pieces to the puzzle, to the box forever. When did you know you had a book? You know, there's the old saying about how poetry's never finished, it's just abandoned. Yeah, yes, that's a very good question because um, I've been told for years, you know, most of my life, you know, hey, you need to publish, you know, you need to write, you have a gift. And for a long time, you know, to piggyback on what you said about poetry being abandoned, never finished, I abandoned the mission before I even embarked upon it because I just lived in my head. I said, I have all these pieces of writing in my mind, whether it's an essay, poetry, or a novel. And I just, I put the pen to pad, but I never released it to the public. Mm-hmm. Maybe fear, maybe hesitation, you know, because it's like they say about art. Once you release it, it no longer belongs to you. So I was able to reconcile all of that within the title, um, My Train is on Schedule. So that's me saying, hey, you know, if if I started writing when I was 90 years old, you know, hey, that's my time to arrive. I'm on schedule, so there's no rush. And on the other side of that is the idea that whether or not I'm finished with my lunch or I've got my shoe tied or whatever, the train's going to leave and I need to be on it. Marquez Price is the author of My Train is on Schedule. We'll close this interview with another of his poems called Honey. My mother used to call my father Honey when I was little. But to me, honey was something you put on bread. My eureka moments occurred when you poured bleach down the drain so my sink wouldn't stink and introduced me to chai tea with milk to drink. When you took scissors and cut a piece of cactus from your front yard to squeeze and apply aloe vera to the wound on my skin. From the first time I met you that night, it felt like a moonlight tryst. This must be the place, like talking heads. The familiarity made me re-examine reincarnation. You were sweet as honey. Since the pandemic began in 2020, people around the world have realized the importance and relevance of natural outdoor spaces. At Tucson Audubon Society, this sentiment has been a cornerstone of their mission since it was founded in 1949, and it's one that the new executive director vows to continue and reinforce. Next, Tony Paniagua has an interview with Michael McDonald, who's been working in the nonprofit world for several decades. Michael, why did you decide to join Tucson Audubon Society? We know you've been the CEO of the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. You've also worked in Native Seed Search, Nature Conservancy, and other organizations such as Habitat for Humanity. I've only known one place to live, and it's Tucson, Arizona. And so I'm deeply committed to place and people and the nexus or the confluence between biodiversity conservationists I've always been a, an environmentalist, so biodiversity conservation, and that nexus to economic and environmental justice and social justice. I, I think that's what it takes if we're going to be serious about protecting the environment, the landscapes, plants and species, the birds that we all love, 
and they're all at risk. You know, I'm up at the uh, Tucson Audubon's uh, Mason Center in the Ironwood Forest, and of course, we all know that we've seen land and habitat fragmentation because of development. We all know we're running out of water. We all know our rivers are underground, and we all know that everything we love about Southern Arizona is at risk. So I think it's a time for all of us to say, what will it take <laughs> to move the needle, uh, both with hands-on projects and good public policy? When people hear of Tucson Audubon Society or any Audubon Society, they immediately think about birds. But I was on your website, and you have people that work in issues such as invasive plants, conservation and research, restoration. Can you tell us about that, please? Well, I myself am an amateur birder. You know, this is entering my sixth decade here in uh, Southern Arizona. I'm still learning everything that is important. I walk by so many things my whole life and haven't seen them. So I think uh, we're not just uh, the good old boys birding club. We're really about let's protect the habitat that bird species and many species depend on. And so that does look like getting rid of invasive plants. You know, buffalo grass we all know about, tamarask or salt cedar we should know about, whether it's a riparian area or in the uplands and of foothills. There's just a lot of plants that just aren't good for all kinds of reasons, and they cause wildfires and they destroy other uh, healthy habitats and ecosystems. So invasive species management, something that hands-on, we have projects up and down the Santa Cruz River and beyond that Tucson Audubon staff and volunteers uh, take care of. We also do a lot of restoration of riparian areas along the Santa Cruz, the Patagonia, Sonoida Creek watershed, and many other places where birds and people just like to go out and experience nature. So we've got uh, even urban conservation work where we have a Habitat at Home program where if you're wanting to attract pollinators, whether those are bees or butterflies, you want to have arid land adapted plants and lower your water bill, we've got a program called Habitat at Home. And of course, public policy work, uh, I can't understate how important that work is because no matter how much hands-on work we all do, if we're not really looking at good water conservation policy, good land development policy, and good species management policy, all of our hard work on the ground is for naught if we don't have a good policy environment, which is so at risk in Arizona. And now that you are the executive director of the Tucson Audubon Society, do you look at birds differently? If you walk around somewhere and you see, for example, <laughs> a wren or a roadrunner, is that doing something different for you now? You know, I think I fell back in love with backyard birding during the pandemic. <laughs> like, oh, none of us could get out and get away. Get outside was, was everything. I, maybe I look at birding now differently that I'm the executive director of Tucson Audubon because I'm supposed to know what the hell it's all about. And I will again say it's just so fun to learn uh, from people who have had lifelong experiences with birding to other beginners like myself who think, wow, this is so fun. I never knew this bird was here. And learning about, well, what is that bird? It's an A-bear's toey that lives in my backyard. It's a, it's a pair that mate for life. They stay in the same place for life. That kind of sounds like me. And, and like many people have a commitment to place and to people. And so just learning about those connections is so fun and energizing, regardless of your level of expertise, if you will. And having just joined the organization, what are some of your priorities? I would say we build on the foundation of success. Tucson Audubon has been here for many decades. Great work behind us. 
and a great foundation right now, those restoration projects, those invasive species management, the habitat at home to you know get butterflies and pollinators and birds and, and uh, good arid land plants in your yard and lower your, your water bill. All of that is utterly necessary. I think where we're all missing the boat to preserve the best of Arizona is we've got to look at public policy, local, state, and federal. And we've got to say, look, we're creative people. Let's have a restorative, creative, capitalistic economy where we manage multiple bottom lines, not just the financial, and not just extract wealth today for some, and then leave at risk generations of humans and species that we love. And so that public policy work is ahead of us. Michael McDonald, Executive Director of the Tucson Audubon Society, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The Tucson nonprofit Literacy Connects sponsors a group of performers and musicians called Stories That Soar. Their mission is to help young writers realize the power and possibility of bringing their stories to life across all mediums. Next, we'll hear Anchita, written in her native Bengali language by Sanjita, a fifth-grade student at Sam Hughes Elementary. Come, friends. Come, family. It is time for telling stories. Gather with us, Ankakale. Once upon a time, in some country, was a little girl whose name is Anchita. She has no parents, no home, and very little to eat. One day, she is walking in a forest with her friend, Nabila. <gasps> Look what I found! What is it? A diamond! I will sell it, then get money, then I will buy a house and food. A diamond? Let me see. mother calling. Bye, Anchita! Wait! My diamond! You see, Nabila is greedy and has stolen the diamond that Anchita found. That night, as Anchita cries herself to sleep in the forest, she dreams of what she will say to Nabila at school the next day. When Anchita wakes up, she is prepared to speak to Nabila, her greedy friend who has stolen the diamond, the diamond that Anchita found in the forest. I will try my dream idea at school when I see Nabila. Anchita finds Nabila at school talking to her friends. Nabila, I must talk to you. If it is about that diamond that I found, I don't want to talk about it. I do want to talk about the diamond. I was the one who found it, Nabila. Rightfully, it is to be mine. It is mine. And do you know how I know? It is at my house. Why would your diamond be at my house, Anchita? And since it is at my house, it is obviously my diamond. While Nabila 
tells Anchita that the diamond is now hers, since it is at her house. Nabila's friends hide and listen. Nabila's friends are also greedy. They run to Nabila's house and take the diamond. They find the diamond and run with it. But then they fight about who gets the diamond now. The greedy friends are still fighting over the diamond. The diamond they took from Nabila. The same diamond Nabila took from Anchita. The diamond that Anchita found in the forest. It's mine. I am the one holding it. Therefore, it is mine. Oh, well, if that's how it works, then it's mine. Give it to me. No. I had it first. Uh-uh, mine. It's mine. I got it. Now. No, I know. You're going to drop it. As you can guess, the diamond falls into the river and washes away. But because Anchita is in the forest by the river, she finds the diamond as it travels downstream. This time, she goes very, very far away from that country. She sells her diamond, buys a house and some food, and Tini Pierre Aki Zuki Baja Basa. She lives happily ever after. Bye bye, Anchita. Thank you for joining us, friends. The That story was written by Sanjita, a fifth-grade student at Sam Hughes Elementary. It was produced by the team at Stories That Soar, with the sitar performed by a team member who also helped translate the story from Bengali. All interested student-age readers are welcome to feed their stories now to the Magic Box Story Portal at literacyconnects.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.